Contract demonstrates the incredible power that workers have when they are not afraid to use it. But the choice about what happens next is up to all of you. For far too long, we were being left behind by an economy that only works for the billionaire class. In the billionaire's economy, working class communities continue to get left behind, plants continue to close, families continue to struggle, while the CEOs and the wealthy pocket every last dime. This contract is about more than just economic gains for auto workers. It's a turning point in the class war that's been raging in this country for the past 40 years. For too long, it's been one-sided and working class people have been left behind. That's why this contract is more than just a contract. It's a call to action to workers everywhere to organize and fight for a better life. The auto workers at Ford just won a major battle in the fight for a better world. Billionaires aren't going to save the American dream. Working class people are saving the American dream. The UAW is saving the American dream, and we are doing it together. When I think about where this fight began, one thing is abundantly clear. They underestimated us. They underestimated you. These corporations had no idea what was coming for them. And they have no idea what's next. Today, with your support and the support of millions of people throughout our country, we begin a political revolution. The KC Morning Show. Yo, what's the word, Kansas City? My name's Hartzell. Hey, happy Tuesday to the KC Morning Hoes. Tuesdays on this show, you know what we do. We take back America, that radical, progressive history of America. Yeah, we've always had it. We should probably take a look at that thing, go back to it. Myself, Professor Harvey J.K., the Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. This is our project. We do it alongside you. Professor K is still out on the road. I believe he's in New York now. That man is a moving and a shaking. But you will hear from the good professor today on your KC Morning Show. This is Professor K's remarks at the Our Wisconsin Revolution Convention. I was honored to be there. It was dope as hell, radical as hell, and you gonna hear it today. Enjoy that, my friends. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing that you do. Absolutely. It is a good day, damn good day, to be a Kansas Cityan. Back in your feeds tomorrow, we will see you in the morning. Bye. They are unanimous in their hate for me. And I welcome their The KC Morning Show. I'm going to On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report. Close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue.
Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. The talk I'm going to give today is long in the making. I've been working on the Economic Bill of Rights stuff a long time. Maybe longer than the younger people in this room are alive. But it is the case that these last few years, Alan Minsky of Progressive Democrats of America really picked up on what I've been doing. And together, we have authored a number of things and we've lobbied. And as I'll report at the end, we're actually making headway. But I want to open with a historical truth. And I know it's very strange for anybody to say truth these days, but this is a historical truth. It was first pronounced by the great populist and progressive journalist, Henry Demers Lloyd. And this is what he said around 1900. We can save the rights we have inherited from our fathers only by winning new ones to bequeath our children. I'm going to repeat that. I don't expect you to memorize it, but I would like it to sink in. We can save the rights we have inherited from our fathers only by winning new ones to bequeath our children. And in that spirit, I begin. Now remember, I'm the historian today, so stick with me, okay? Stick with me. No test afterward. <laughs> we have endured, this is the truth as well, we've endured nearly 50 years of corporate, conservative, and neoliberal assaults on the democratic achievements of what many call the long age of Roosevelt, from the 1930s to the early 1970s. And those assaults have stripped workers, women, and people of color of their hard-won rights, engendered unprecedented concentrations of wealth and power, and devastated the lives of millions. They are assaults that have placed the American political system, indeed American democratic life, in jeopardy. But as my grandmother used to say, when anybody went on too long, enough is enough. The time has come to do what our parents, grandparents, and for some of you, great-grandparents did. The time has come to redeem their legacy and renew their fight for an economic bill of rights. The time has come to make America, first I say progressive, then I wrote, no, what the f***, radical. faith in government to do the right thing cratered over a decade ago. Most Americans feel that money perverts our elections and results in policies favor the rich over the average person. And they are right on both accounts. Compounding the crisis, scandals and innuendo receive more media coverage than legislation and policy. Partisan squabbling dominates the national dialogue. Blocking the opposition takes precedence over pursuing a positive program. And to top it all off, the Republicans are poised to renominate Donald Trump for president. Even though he clearly broke his oath of office, his oath of office to uphold the Constitution in attempting to reverse the 2020 presidential election. And it looks like he's got a good chance of winning in 2024. Let's face facts. Now it would not only be tragic, it would be ironic, given that the American people overwhelmingly and avidly do support democracy. But the greatest president of the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt, warned us 85 years ago, around this time in the year, when he said, popular support is not enough. I'm going to read you what he said to the American people on the eve of the elections of 1938, November 38. 
He said, as of today, fascism and communism and old-line Tory republicanism are not threats to the continuation of our form of government. But I venture the challenging statement that if American democracy ceases to move forward as a living force, seeking day and night by peaceful means to better the lot of our citizens, then fascism and communism, aided unconsciously perhaps by old-line Tory republicanism, will grow in strength in our land. Sadly, fascism is resurgent. So what are we going to do? What do we do? Well, for starters, we should do what the powers that be don't want us to do. We should take hold of our history and remind ourselves of what all the Republicans and all too many Democrats do not want us to remember. We should remind ourselves of how FDR and those who we have come to call the greatest generation not only saved the United States from economic ruin and political oblivion, they also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous nation on earth by making America, and I mean this, by making America dramatically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. As I say over and over again, radically freer, radically more equal, and radically more democratic than ever. Witnessing the devastation, I'm going to surprise you, you may not know this about FDR, witnessing the devastation of the Depression and fearing what might ensue. He was seriously worried about the possibility of fascism in 1930-32. Why not? Italy had already gone fascist. The others were soon to fall. But he appreciated how generations had prevailed over mortal national crises in the 1770s and the 1860s. Roosevelt told a friend two years before he launched his campaign in 32, there was no question in my mind that it is time for the country to become fairly radical for at least one generation. And in his ensuing New Deal campaign, he projected a vast array of initiatives that would empower Americans to not simply overcome the Depression. This is the key. Everybody thinks, well, yeah, he led the country through the Depression. He was going to rebuild a nation, rebuild Americans, assure greater economic security and opportunity, and bring an end to the Gilded Age power structure that had driven the country into the worst economic and social catastrophe in history. Now, Roosevelt never believed that he was the boss, however much the presidency afforded that. He always said it was imperative that he also be pushed. He also proposed the creation, this is 1932, running for president, the creation of a new declaration, an economic declaration of rights to redeem and renew the revolutionary promise of 1776, the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The conservatives have always sought to rip it off, to hijack the past. The promise, he said, which corporate titans have for so long denied the vast majority of Americans. And what followed is what right-wingers lie about and centrists turn their backs on. Encouraged by FDR, Americans didn't just take up the labors of the New Deal, they pushed him to go further than he may ever have planned on going. And together, people and president, not always in tandem, initiated revolutionary changes in American government and public life. They subjected capital to public account and regulation. They empowered government to address the needs of working people and the poor. They organized labor unions, consumer campaigns, and civil rights organizations to fight for their rights and broaden and level the we in we the people. They established a social security system and fair labor standards. They built schools, libraries, post offices, parks, and playgrounds, and they vastly expanded the nation's public infrastructure with new roads and bridges and dams, the whole scene. 
They dramatically improved the American landscape and environment, and they energetically cultivated the arts and refashioned popular culture. And none of us were there to experience it, but just think of swing music, how revolutionary that was in its day. Now, undeniably, they left a hell of a lot undone, especially regarding racial justice and equality. But in all their diversity, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. And when the second crisis struck, they did not stop. Inspired by FDR's four freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, they not only went all out to defeat fascism, they also subjected the economy to even greater public control, continued to expand labor, consumer, and civil rights movements, reduced poverty and inequality from the bottom up, Inequality in America between 1938 and 1973 was reduced. I'm not talking just poverty. I'm talking inequality was reduced. All of these things in a democratic way, but that's not all. Polling showed that what they had accomplished in the New Deal and the ongoing war effort had made Americans ever more determined to keep moving the country in a more progressive and, a word we rarely use, social democratic direction when the war was to end. <laughs> Consider this, and I decided I'd only give you one example. Consider that 85% of Americans embrace the idea of universal health care. 85%. Now, that included 95% of Democrats. And who the f*** were the other 5%? <laughs> and 75% of Republicans. And where'd they go, right? They didn't go away. That's the point I'll be getting to. All of which gave the president the confidence to declare in his 1944 State of the Union message. Listen to what he said. We have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. I mean, when's the last time you ever heard any president talk like that? We have accepted, he said, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. I can tell you that I get constantly harangued by different folks regarding FDR's sins, sins of omission. But I do want to make clear, in the course of this campaign in 44, he called for an end to Jim Crow voting laws. Okay, people forget that. Returning to his 1932 campaign proposal, in that same state of the university, he says, we want an economic declaration of rights, an economic bill of rights, he actually said, for all Americans that will guarantee such things as a useful job and a living wage, guaranteed a useful job and a living wage, universal health care, a good education, food security, a decent home, and I can tell you, and he was serious about this, opportunities for recreation. Now for what it's worth, I can also tell you that he was listening from early in the 20th century forward to the labor movement. Remember, eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours of what we will, and the demand for an American standard of living. Now this is crucial. That's a bit of history, but now the history that no one talks about at all. Roosevelt's message thrilled the left and labor unionists. 
Almost immediately, both the AFL and the CIO, joined by the National Farmers Union and a newly organized National Citizens Political Action Committee, launched campaigns to promote that message and indeed help him win a fourth term. But as popular as that call was, Roosevelt did not assume it would be easy going forward with corporate bosses. By the way, the other two folks I'm gonna name here were in his mind, but he, he was telling Americans that corporate bosses will pursue fierce rightist reaction. He wasn't thinking of the KKK, he was talking about the capitalists. And in words that should speak loudly to us today, he warned. Now listen to these words, because we've allowed this to go too far, you might say. If such reaction, if that rightist reaction develops, if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, which are completely misrepresented in the history books and in the movies. The 1920s for working people was not the roaring 20s. Farmers really took a beating throughout the 20s. Working people had to send every member of the family who could work out to work. The economic stories say, hey, household income went up. Well, yeah, if three quarters of the family is out earning, it might well go up. So let me get back. If we were to return to the normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism at home. Yes, FDR won re-election that November, but unfortunately he passed away the following spring. Still, his economic bill of rights did not die. It informed the now legendary GI Bill of Rights. It propelled the Truman administration to try to secure national health care. And it led the Democrats. Why the hell doesn't any Democrat remember this? I can tell you. I bet if we ask the 50 senators who are Democrats and whatever number of Democrats there are in the House, ask them, tell me about the 60s Democratic Party platform. They will not tell you that it was pronounced they were going to lay out the platform, it's right at the top of the platform, in terms of the rights of man and FDR's economic bill of rights. Then in the 60s, it encouraged not only Lyndon Johnson to pursue the war on poverty and win passage of Medicare and Medicaid, it also encouraged the great labor and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, to advance a freedom budget, a 10-year plan to reconstruct America, rural and urban, and achieve in his words, Randall's words, freedom from want in America. A plan that was endorsed by 150 of the nation's most prominent foundation, academic, labor, and religious leaders. The war in Vietnam got in the way of everything. But it also moved Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to echo FDR himself and call in 1968 for an economic bill of rights just before he went to Memphis to join the fight for the rights of striking sanitation workers. More recently, both Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, right? And the knife-wielding progressive Elizabeth Warren, I will never forgive her for what she did to Bernie that night on the stage. It was a lie and she knew it. They both renewed FDR's call for an economic bill of rights in their 2020 presidential campaigns. Marianne Williamson is currently championing the idea in her presidential campaign. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, though, has yet to rise to the occasion of talking about it, but at least they are advancing some programmatic bills that speak to it. But I must not fail to tell you 
that our sister Nina Turner made the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights that Alan Minsky and I were working on with her in consultation, the topmost idea in her second congressional campaign. that campaign, she would have gone to Washington and made inside the Beltway folks do the right thing. And I can tell you, as I promised Nina, I'd have moved to D.C. <laughs> I would not have hesitated to. I've lived in Wisconsin now for 45 years. I would not have given up my home here, but I wanted to be there when she made those things happen. But most critically, this is the thing that we have to grab hold of. Even if most Americans do not remember the history I just recounted, national polls show that the great majority of them do aspire to secure an economic bill of rights just as their grandparents sought to secure an economic bill of rights. So the question remains, what are we to do? As I said at the outset, we must do what our grandparents, in my case parents, for some of you great-grandparents did. Now, admittedly, we do not have an FDR as president, no matter what the Democratic National Committee tries to tell us. We do not have a president who will call for overthrowing, and these are FDR's words, the power of the economic royalists. How many presidents have actually called for the overthrow of the corporate power structure in America? One. That was FDR in 1936. We don't have a president who will seek to empower and engage working people in democratically transforming the prevailing political and economic order. We do not have a president who will inspire us by proclaiming the likes of the four freedoms and envisioning an economic bill of rights. Nonetheless, we have the history of what Roosevelt and that generation did accomplish and sought to achieve. And we have no excuses because we have solid reason to believe that our fellow citizens still fundamentally embrace his and that generation's vision. So first of all, the time has come to both remind ourselves of that story and also encourage ourselves to sustain and advance those aspirations, that's first. And second of all, the time has come for all progressive organizations, DSA, OWR, PDA, Justice Democrats, and all of the others to get it together and create with the National Nurses, the UAW, and other unions. I could go on. I mean, right now the UAW is poised, I hope Fane will listen to this argument, to create a grand progressive and social democratic coalition that will take up FDR's vision anew and rally working people to fight for an economic bill of rights. This is that Economic Bill of Rights as a starter. A useful job that pays a living wage. A voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Comprehensive, quality health care. Complete, cost-free public education as far as a student's ability will take her. And access to broadband internet. Fifth, decent, safe, affordable housing. Sixth, a clean environment and a healthy planet. Seven, a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. That idea goes all the way back to my hero, Thomas Paine, by the way. <laughs> Sound banking and financial services. An equitable and economically fair justice system. And finally, recreation and participation in civic and democratic life. 
The time has come to save American democracy by radically enhancing it. Thank you. Show. 